Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Back from hibernation, I'm Kenny Holmes. I'm Robert Kraft, and uh, I'll tell you that two weeks was really remarkable for me. You know, it was actually three weeks. It was, was two it three Wednesdays, weeks? but oh, it was shoot. three weeks. Three weeks. I knew so I, I got confused because you'd think that being here in, in lockdown, there'd be a huge difference between two weeks and three weeks. But actually, the biggest difference may be... I do change my clothes periodically, and so I, I <laughs> feel that that was a strong opportunity over the. We're our, all glad our We're little glad hiatus. To hear that. Thank you so much, but it's great to be back. Say hello to composer Carol. Hello, composer Carol. Hello, composer Carol. I want to test something. Are you ready? Boo. Go ahead. <laughs> That's it. E flat. It's still E flat. <laughs> Composer Carol clearly spent her three weeks practicing her perfect pitch, which you know that you can tap Composer Carol on the shoulder any time of day or night. Not that I would know, but I'm just Please saying. Don't do that. And, <laughs> and sing a pitch, and she will say exactly. Okay, ready? C for Composer Thank Carol. You. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, nice. Let's see. So uh, we have a very exciting guest on the show today. I know. Like many of our guests, we we want to get everyone on the show, but this is definitely uh, one of the top A-lister composers of Hollywood right now. He's Alexander Desplat, two-time Oscar winner, two-time Golden Globe winner. This list of films is insane, the the opus here. Um, he's got a new film coming out with Wes Anderson, who's uh, his partner in crime, The French Dispatch, which we don't know when it's coming out it was pushed to October. Then it was announced that it's kind of up in the air. So we'll we'll see when it comes out. We don't know. But the trailer looks awesome. Uh, he's also working on a new Pinocchio with uh, Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. which he won. Uh, that was the big winner at the Oscars a couple years ago for Shape of Water. Yep. Um, so they're, they're back working together again. The Midnight Sky, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, the two of the Harry Potter films, the Deathly Hallows one and two, uh, Carol's favorite uh, scores for Alexander Desplat. Uh, Isle of Dogs, one of my favorite scores, awesome. And uh, Little Women, Secret Life of Pets, Argo. I mean, the list goes on and on. Fantastic Mr. Fox, which you guys work together on, we'll talk about. Yeah, and one of my favorites. So many to get to. I mean, we could do a five-hour episode with Alexander, so it's going to be hard to squeeze everything in. So if we don't get to your favorite score with him, we promise to try to have him on again, but um, we're going to break down some of uh, his best stuff and uh, talk about his path from composing French films uh, and his transition to Hollywood. So we're going to get to Alexander in just a bit. Uh, first, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of the guests right here on the show. Yeah, I think that a lot of them probably used the Spitfire libraries to compose their Emmy nominated scores. In fact, that could be a subcategory of our Emmy nominations coming up because Spitfire has something for everyone. If you're just starting out, they have the completely free range of top quality instruments called labs. Yeah. You can just download them. There's a bunch of different ones. Black labs, blonde labs, brown labs. They have labradoodles. Maybe not. (laughs) 
but the new Discovery edition of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, which I got for free, it's 49 bucks, but you can get it for free by filling out a survey that's on their website and just wait two weeks. It's a full yep. orchestra at your fingertips. I got mine too over the break, mm. tooling around with it. Uh, and the most important thing to our listeners is our deal for you. 20% off your first purchase of Spitfire products, including their collaboration packages with Hans Zimmer, Oliver Arnold's uh, Emmy nominee, by the way. Uh, we'll get to that in just a bit. And the London Contemporary Orchestra. Over 50 different libraries. You can use our promo code. It's SCORE2020, SCORE, all lowercase, 2020. And again, it's a limited time offer, so be sure to use the promo code SCORE2020 so you can elevate your music. And uh, stick around after today's interview with Alexander Desplat. We'll play a cue created using the British Drama Toolkit. Ooh, and I think we have to now segue to the Hollywood Drama Toolkit. Because the Hollywood <laughs> Drama Toolkit is... I like is that. That was a good one. Nice. Thanks. And... uh we have to see who is nominated for Emmys. I do want to say that among these Emmy nominees from the announcement just hours ago, uh, it's hard not to draw a very, very fine line between appearing on Score the Podcast and then, I'm just saying, marching right onto the award stage because you look down these nominees and a lot of them are very good friends of this program and have appeared. Kenny, you want to kick it off with that first category and tell us? Yeah, let's just who let's should we bring on down? Quick. Uh, let's start with the outstanding music composition for limited series, movie or special uh, for original dramatic score. Uh, former guest of the show, Nathan Barr, for his uh, show Hollywood. Yep. Uh, Little Fires Everywhere. By our great friend Mark Isham. And Isabella Summers. Mrs. America, Chris Bowers. Knocking it out of the guest park on the show. Chris Bowers. And he did half of that show in quarantine, so extra kudos That's to right. Chris for that one. Unorthodox Part 1, Antonio Gambale. Gumbale? Yeah, a great show and a great score. And then Watchmen, of course, with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross just crushing it. Uh, next category, Outstanding Music Composition for a Series, Original Dramatic Score. Uh, Labyrinth for Euphoria, which is a really cool score. Uh, Ozark by Danny Bensey and Sondra Jurians. Yeah, so cool. Succession, Nicholas Bertel. Respect. Respect. Of course. Of course, respect. The Crown, Martin Phipps, and uh, The Mandalorian, Ludwig Goransson, who's we, just on a tear. We could start handicapping these, but I think we're just going to say it's an honor to be nominated in uh, any of these categories. And some of these guests, we just, we love them. We love their work. How about outstanding music composition for a documentary series or special? There's an original dramatic score award for that. Kenny, who do we have as contestants in this category? For Becoming, we have Kamasi Washington. Isn't that cool? That was the Michelle Obama doc, and Kamasi is, you know, just great, great contemporary musician. Yep. For Home, we have Amanda Jones. Mm -hmm. For McMillions, we have a score alum. In Pinar Toprak yep, Pinar. and Alex Kovacs. Exactly. Which that docuseries was 
awesome. Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, I, I think I had heard about that McDonald's scam, but they did a great job. And the music was so cool. Yeah. She did a great job with that. Uh, Tiger King, <laughs> which I think, is this the only Emmy nomination Tiger King got? Because um, that's so funny. The, it the music been. should be the only thing celebrated in that show. I yeah. Think. Uh, but Mark Mothersbaugh, another alum of the show, along with John Enroth and Albert Fox. They got Albert Fox in there just for his name because they're going to do Fox King next. Go ahead. <laughs> and uh, Laura Cartman for the Why We Hate score. Oh, we love Laura. That's so great. Uh, let's move it on to original main title theme music, which Nathan Barr, shout out, he has two of the nominations for this. Game. Nathan Barr is up against himself. Yeah, he's they're battling it out right now next to the uh, Wurlitzer. There's two Nathan Barrs fighting over it. Uh, he's he's up for Carnival Row and Hollywood. Um, the yeah. Carnival Row, the Amazon Prime series, and Hollywood on Netflix. Uh, Oliver Arnold's defending Jacob. I bet he's using a Spitfire library on that. I mean, he's probably using his own Spitfire library. Uh, Unorthodox, Antonio Gambale. Why We Hate, Laura Cartman, also killing it. And the RZA for the Wu-Tang an American saga. Isn't that amazing? Of course. And that was, by the way, the Wu-Tang series. So cool. I loved it. I learned about Wu-Tang. I learned about RZA. Staten Island, Brooklyn. It was so Staten Island. And uh, as many of our score listeners know, I had the opportunity to work with Wu-Tang on. What? Wait a second. Yeah. Well, I did a whole thing with them on Ghetto Superstar. Where Old Dirty Bastard came in and uh, did the centerpiece of the record. He rapped in the beginning. It's hopes and dreams. And uh, RZA, RZA and Method Are you Man. sure it's Old Dirty Bastard? That might oh, be Old o- Dirty ODB. No, yeah, well, it was ODK? a toss but Method I didn't know Man, that. This, see, this is why I love doing the shows, because I learned just as much from you. That was what an you've amazing, done. amazing night doing Ghetto Superstar. And, we need uh, to talk more about this later. RZA came and Method Man came and um, it was incredible. And someday I'll, when you get a little older, I'll tell you what really happened that night. <laughs> um, how about outstanding original music and lyrics? That's a great category. My favorite songs. And ooh, you know what? No score alums, but some. Oh, yes, there's one, one score alum. One score alum. Sid Hartha Kosla. And Taylor yeah. Goldsmith for This Is Us. That's right. And so we had Sid Arthur play songs on the show. I want to give a shout out to some of the other nominees, particularly my friend Ingrid Michelson, who did Little Fires Everywhere, the song Find A Way. Uh, actually, the song was called Build It Up from the episode Find A Way. And in Black Godfather, produced by my wonderful classmate and friend Reggie Hudlin, Pharrell and Chad, formerly known as the Neptunes, did the song mm-hmm. Letter to My Godfather. So that's a big one. I also... And Trenton Atticus had another one. Trenton Atticus, of course. For uh, Watchmen. For Watchmen. Uh, I want to give one quick shout out to the music supervisors who do an unrecognized, brilliant job in so many of these shows. Um, 
support your local music supervisor is all I can tell you because they often don't get credit. Thanks to the Guild of Music Supervisors, they now are a category in the Emmys, which is great. Liza Richardson, who did Watchmen, and Nora Felder, who did Stranger Things, Kier Lehman, who did Insecure. I mean, these are great. Thomas Golubic, who did Better Call Saul, Jen Malone, Adam Liebert. These are great, great creative minds. But I want to give my number one shout-out to Robin Erdang, who does The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Crushes it. Does an amazing job, and Robin, we love you. How about extend, extend? I like this category a lot, outstanding music direction, because again, some of my favorite, favorite musicians are in there, including my great pal Ricky Minor, another unheralded genius, competing with himself for the Kennedy Center honors, and also, also, the Oscars. You know, I think I'll just do the music direction for the entire Oscar show. I love how you can win an Emmy for the Oscars. Oh, that's funny. You're right. That's so nice. Uh, for Saturday Night Live, Lenny Pickett, the great, great alto sax player, and Leon Pendarvis, great keyboard player. How has Lenny Pickett not gotten a Emmy nomination for a supporting actor? Because he's always in the background laughing in the uh, monologues. Yeah, you're right. And he's just... I don't know if he gets the credit for being such a great player. Oh, amazing. But uh, the Grammy salute to Prince is actually up for an award with Sheila E., Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. I mean, these are great categories, great musicians. I'm excited to just hear, you know, they're all winners to me because they are all extraordinary beings. I do want to give one other quick shout out too to Peter Bavietz, who was our sound mixer on Score, a film music documentary. And also he is the sound designer and mixer for Blockbuster, uh, Matt Schrader's podcast series. Um, he got an Emmy nomination for his mixing on the show Modern Family. So congrats to Peter as well. Very exciting. Not sure how they're going to do the Emmys. Is it going to be a show? We I don't think we really know. Um, I mean, it'll be televised in some fashion, but I don't know if they'll have an audience or what it'll look like. But um, definitely mm. excited to see what's to come. And how about The Mandalorian getting a nod for Best Dramatic Series in the Primetime Emmys? I mean, that, that was a shock. Amazing. And... Uh, I would stay far away from that if I was in that category because that's going to come and eat your lunch. Mandalorian's going to be a big winner at this yeah, year's end. It was a good series. And um, again, shout out to Ludwig, who we'd love to get on the show. Wouldn't that be great if we could get Ludwig? Speaking of Ludwig, uh, Tenet has a new, as we continue, Tenet Watch. Every week, I think we have a new update for uh, this film. But um, they've updated the rollout plan. It's going to open internationally before domestically uh, in over 70 countries starting August 26th, uh, including Canada on August 27th. And then the U.S. release is planned to begin September 3rd in select cities. Um, and they're going to use that weekend to capitalize on the long Labor Day weekend. But unclear which cities it's going to be based on what's happening with the regulations at that time. And we'll kind of just go from there. But so it's now September in the United States. I, there's a billboard um, right over by universal studios where I go to and from work every day. 
and uh, <laughs> the billboard has like they might as well just get a digital sign for the date because it keeps changing. Huh. I can't imagine That's how much that billboard has it cost out. them. I know it's like tenant, and then in the corner there's like. It's like when you have white out covering something and then written over the top of it. Oh, that's funny. Well, Ludwig scores that, and like everything he does, I'm sure it will be amazing and an amazing movie. And I'm going to see the minute they publish the list of cities, if Robert Kraft's living room is one of the cities <laughs> it's planning to come to, because that will be a wonderful place, even though I want to see it on a big screen. So we'll see. IMAX. It's Chris Nolan, man. And uh, there was some big news this week. In the daytime Emmys, where our good friend Alan Menken, who we all know from the great Disney movies that he's done, uh, he got his EGOT status. EGOT is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. So you have now composed music for television, for records and radio, that's the Grammy, for Movies, that's Oscars, and Tony's, that's the Broadway stage. And uh, Alan Menken, congratulations to you. The Emmy this time was for the Rapunzel Tangled Adventure. And uh, that makes eight Oscars and 11 Grammys for songs and scores from Disney hits. The Little Mermaid, thank you, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, and Pocahontas, and a Tony Award for Newsies, which was a wonderful movie, and then it moved to Broadway, and he got the Tony. So congratulations to Alan Menken. Yeah, and you guys did Little Mermaid together. Yep, we worked together on Little Mermaid. Uh, it was myself and Alan Menken and the great Howard Ashman. Which there's a uh, Disney Plus docuseries or documentary coming out, I think, like next week, about Howard Ashman. And it... Li- it, the some of the footage they showed in the trailer looks really cool. It's like the behind the scenes. I love when you watch animated like behind the scenes stuff and you see them in the booth and how the actors and the singers are, you know, being the characters, but you've never seen who the real people are and they're singing. And it, I, I'm excited to watch that. Oh, I am too. And uh, I had the pleasure of recording actors and singers with Howard in the room with a pencil and a notepad. And you'd finish a take and he'd say, wait, 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 I got a better one. And he on the spot would write a new verse. He was really a certifiable genius. And the new verse was better than the four verses you had just recorded and go back in and do it again. I saw him do it time and time again. Really an incredible mind and creative person. Well, that'll be great. And congrats to Alan Mankin again, hitting EGOT status, the 16th person to achieve that title. Uh, We're going to get to Alexander Desplat in just a moment, but of course, before we do, we have a message in our score, The Mailbox. This is from Stum and Lout. Stum and Lout writes, Your episode with Teddy Shapiro got me all fired up to go through his works again, but that's easier said than done. I'd really like to buy the scores for Old School and Dodgeball, but I can't find them anywhere online. He goes on to say that he once reached out to a composer. I'm not going to say who the composer was because the composer probably shouldn't have done this. But um, he got an unreleased score from a, a composer that he was a fan of that never got released. And he was wondering, why don't all scores get released? And I felt like, Robert, you probably have been in this situation quite a bit. Why don't all, all scores get released? 
Well, it's a fantastic question, and Stumman Laut, I, I don't know if you can imagine the answer has to do with, we should have a little drum roll, money. So, um, first, there we go. <laughs> um, that was sort of a drum roll. Uh, Thank you. So, the hardest part about releasing a score is simply that you have to do something called reuse. Reuse is when you use something that's been paid for, for example, union musicians recording, which is what you always have on a movie score, and then you want to reuse it in a different medium, like a record. You have to pay them again. If you have a score that costs a certain amount of money, sometimes tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you want to reuse it, you have to pay that money again or a portion of it. And not every studio or film producer wants to do that. Why would they do that? Are they going to get that money back from record sales? So it's simple math, and it's often a big decision. Hey, Let's see, the dodgeball score, whereas, and is anybody going to go and buy a dodgeball score? Yeah, there's a small devoted group of fans of Teddy's and of that movie that will get it. But that amount of money that is generated by releasing the score, is that going to make up what we have to pay already in front to the union to release it? And the answer, unfortunately, is often not entirely clear so the scores don't get released so there's royalties but there's also an upfront fee that like if you can't clear that fee what's the point exactly so so on top of that if they can clear that that first hurdle then it's just a percentage of whatever they sell it's not upfront. yes and as you can imagine when you have an enormous orchestra playing 90 players and somebody wants the score album and the studio is, you know, all fired up to promote the movie. Sometimes they have to say, we're going to bite the bullet. We're going to spend what could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in reuse to release this score album because maybe we'll buy it back, but it's a good thing to have in the marketplace it's good marketing maybe it's going to make a top composer love us more so there's a lot of calculation to releasing a score album so let me ask you this as we move into this like streaming age and the cost of printing and putting copies of cds on the shelves which may or may not sell that stuff is kind of out the window now is it more likely that scores will get released without that part of it? That the fact that it can just get put on a streaming service and people can listen to it? Or is that, does that mean less revenues coming in because it's just on a streaming platform? Very fine questions. And part of the answers included in your answer, but the musicians aren't getting paid any less. So whether it comes out streaming or it comes out on a CD or it comes out in a box set, you still have to pay the reuse. Now the, AF of M, the American Federation of Musicians, may now be looking at or may even have new deals that say streaming only and a reduced fee, uh, which I'm going to have to get back to you on that because I'm fond of saying when I don't know the answer. Um, but you still have to reuse 
you're reusing the music. The music was recorded for one purpose, to be in the movie. You want to reuse it to be on a record or stream it? Somebody has to get paid again. That's part of the genius of some of the deals that were made many years ago to compensate musicians for their work. So in short, just like Stum and Lout did, just uh, track down your favorite composer's email and beg them for the uh, unreleased pirated bootleg tracks uh, from the film, I think is the answer. And just say... I did not hear this from Score the Podcast. <laughs> uh, great question from Stum and Lau. Thanks for that question. If you have a question for us, send it to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. That's E P I C L E F F.com. And you might hear your question answered right here on the show. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then I think we're going to come back with the Oscar winning maestro of the upcoming film, The French. Dispatch, Alexandre Desplats joining us from Paris, France. We'll be right back. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What, me? No, 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 no. Ah! This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Nathan Barr. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. Another week, another guest overseas. It's been the international season of Score the Podcast, and we're very excited for our guest today. Two-time Oscar-winning composer, two-time Golden Globe-winning composer for amazing films like Shape of Water, Grand Budapest Hotel, Painted Veil. He also has a new film coming up with uh, Wes Anderson, The French Dispatch. And uh, he's also the guest of honor at this year's World Soundtrack Awards. Please welcome Alexandre Desplat to the show. Alexandre, I'm surprised that uh, Wes didn't name it the French Desplat. <laughs> Why did he call it the French Dispatch? You couldn't work on that? Yeah, I think I, can, I, I came in too late on the project, I guess. No, maybe that's your biopic. That's the one they're <laughs> going to do. You know, like the George Gershwin movie. They'll do one about you. The French Desplat. We do a musical like Enemies Behaving, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fun to even talk about the Wes Anderson pictures because one of my favorite scores, and among many, is Fantastic Mr. Fox. I lived for about six months on, on one queue called High Speed Train, <laughs> and I always thought High Speed Train was your personality in a piece of music because it's funny and it also has a kind of that little release has a kind of bittersweet quality a little melancholy so it's kind of a, a sweet kind of reflective bit and then it comes back to fun and I always thought that cue that's your biography in a cue does Wes Anderson come to you with an idea here's the kind of instrumentation here's the feel I want or does he leave it up to you I must say that Mr. Fox was really up to me. Um, it's evolved through the years where he, he you know, he mentions now uh, an era or a uh, location and I tried to put together with him an instrumentarium. But for Mr. Fox, when I saw 
you know, some snippets of the film for the first time. These puppets were so pretty, so beautiful, so cute, uh, that the desire that they had of having a big orchestral score seemed just wrong to me. And I thought that the music should be of the same uh, level, which means a small chamber orchestra uh, and with little instruments. So that's where we, uh, we, we went. Does it take you a while to get to that conclusion? How long does it take you to realize, like, was it immediate or did you try orchestral big sweeping stuff first and then realize this isn't working? No, it's, it always starts with some kind of a intellectual instinctive reaction to what I see. It's something that I quickly try to analyze. I might be wrong, but at least I have a concept. Yes, it's a place to start. I know that on, I read that on this one, the French Desplat, which I'm going to call it forever, um, that Dada was mentioned. And I thought, that's my favorite. You know, I used to go visit Man Ray on Rue for Rue, right near mm -hmm. your studios mm -hmm. in Jardin mm -hmm. Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but I thought a Dada score, what is that like? Do you take instruments and drop them downstairs? <laughs> uh, well, it, that's what I that's what I said to 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 West when I read the script that his script was Dada, uh, which is just before the surrealists start the movement, and um, it, I think it's more the way the the uh, the unpredictable, the disconnection between the chords or the, the melody lines um, create some some. Uh, Disorder, mm. Dada-like disorder, or an orderly disorder, but... Orderly disorder. They, I mean, and surrealism took it to the next step with dream yeah. disorder. But I love that. I can't wait to hear it. The French Dispatch. I think you were going to play it at Cannes, and it's yep. been moved. Do you know when we can see the film? No, I don't know. I heard... There was there was a time where it was meant to be released in October, but I don't know now what will be happening. I don't know. I don't know how how much the theaters will be able to to open. A lot of times with scores, it's kind of a race to the the release date for the composer. You're you're the last person to put your stamp on the film. But with this case, the movie's done and it's sitting there. Do you have any thoughts of like, man, I? I've got time. Can I go back in and do something? Or do you just call it done and call and move on? No, unless uh, I receive a phone call from the director or the producer, I, I run. <laughs> I bet. I bet. You. I, run, I run to the next project. You know, one thing that's, that's always interested me, because I first heard your name the way and on the film that a lot of people did, which was Girl with the Pearl Earring. And I know that you had been a celebrated French composer before that, but I wondered during those 50 French films, was your dream to go to Hollywood and you were hoping someone would hear you and bring you in, or was that an accident? I think that secretly it was always a dream of becoming a Hollywood composer, yes. Um, and many of my friends tell me now that I did mention it. I can't remember mentioning it, I mean, oralizing it, but I know that I was dreaming of that because the, the, the scores that impressed me the most were from 
whether French composers who had flown, flown to Hollywood, like Delerue, Maurice Jarre, even Michel Legrand, or Hollywood composers like um, Herman, Waxman, and Goldsmith, and Williams, uh, and even Nino Rota, who's my, maybe my favorite Italian composer uh, for, for cinema, even Nino Rota, actually, he did The Godfather. So, um, yes, there was something about uh, American cinema that was uh, capturing my, my attention since I'm, I was a child. Don't forget that my parents were students in, in Berkeley, California in the 50s. Um, and they both spoke English together because my mother was Greek and my, mother, my father was French. So it was their secret language. So as a child, I would hear as much English as Greek or French at, uh, in the house. And they had many records. And in, in, in these records, there were many soundtracks. So I, as a child, I'm, I'm sure there's a very strong subconscious um, push for me to go to America. Was there a in score in that, yeah. in, the, in that collection that, that stood out to you, a, a film score or a soundtrack? Picnic, hmm. Cowboy, George Dunning. <laughs> yeah. And it's just wonderful. You not only came to Hollywood, you conquered. You came to Hollywood, and, and I, remember, I remember watching it, Girl with a Pearl Earring, then Birth, and then I was surprised when you did Hostage. I thought, oh, is action, is he, he, he's everything. You really just sort of took it all on. It was kind of incredible that the list of films that that you ended up with um the Guillermo del Toro how did you first meet him and where was that well he was the co um producer on a uh, an animation um at Dreamworks called The Rise of the Guardians and um so I met him at, at a screening and he you know we just had a little chat and and he and he called me a few a couple of years later about uh, this project he had about a uh, um, fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Until I got a script, and that was maybe three years later after meeting with uh, with Guillermo. But did you have in that situation? We were talking earlier about temp scores. For some reason, I believe I read that you saw Shape of Water with no music. Or did he have yes. music? So you well, had to in invent it from the beginning. But you know, I, I was I was lucky enough to to be introduced in Hollywood by two persons that you know very well, Laura Engel, of course. Yeah. But before Laura Engel was Bobby Urban, Robert Urban, who was my manager. That's right. That, that you know very well, and he took me around, and he gave me some advices, and um, he he knew that. Um, there were some films that I should, I was not ready to do. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Firewall as an action movie, and but when I started, he, he kept saying to me, "No, no, don't go near an action movie yet. You're not ready. You don't. You can't do a big movie. You're not yet. Take your time." And he was right. He could feel that I was still in my, um, you know, nu post nouvelle vague uh, mood and, and technique and. And I was not yet uh, strong enough in both ways, technically, um, diplomacy, 
mind, everything. Nerves, nerves. That is unbelievable. Nerves. It's unbelievable that a, a manager or an advisor would have that kind of instinct because he's, he's saying you could get hurt by doing this big picture. Yeah, but the, the great thing about Robert Urban, he was looking at the long run. He was not looking for, you know, a, a shortcut. He wanted me to be, to become a composer in Hollywood, not to just be a, the flavor of the day. Yeah. And he was, he was fabulous about, you know, he helped a lot. How was it different coming to Hollywood after doing so many French films? Was there a different feel to it? Was the, the approach different just from what directors were looking for in your eyes? Everything is different. Everything is different from the relationship between the, uh, the composer and the director and the composer and the producer. In France, it's the director who's leading everything. It's not the producer. Of course, you listen to him and you're, you're polite, but it's the director who decides of everything. He has the final cut. In America, there are many voices that you need to hear. Doesn't mean they're right, but you have to understand what they are talking about and translate it into the, the score you're writing. Um, there's also the, uh, the technology, the resources, all these things that are given to a composer in America to create a score. In France, there's a very, very little amount of time and money allowed to a composer uh, to create what he has to create. And thirdly, the films, uh, they don't have these huge epic uh, options that American cinema always had. There are very, very little movies uh, in France and Europe that can, you know, challenge an American uh, epic movie. And, and they have, and, and, and they fought, and they fought the score. So, uh, French movies have a lot of dialogue, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people in a room or people in a bar. Smoking uh, cigarettes. Yes, you know, two boys and a girl, two girls and a boy. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it, it's a different approach. I learned something from French composers and European composers that surprised me. I, coming up in America, was used to composers who were very cue-y. I don't know, you know, they you, you wrote to the cue in the specific moment. And I started to work. I remember I was taught it by a Polish composer. What he wanted to do was go away from the movie and write themes that worked. And he would, the first day of scoring was not to picture. He played for the director, Adrian Lin, maybe three themes to say, these are the themes I feel, and I'll then adapt them to the film. I'd never seen that before. Were you more in this? Did you have to adapt to being cue in a way, if that's the right word, for American films? No, I, 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 would, I, would, um, I would say differently. I would say that I like movies which are character-driven, and I like to respect the actors, and I like to leave to the dialogue the room that it needs. And I don't like to underline everything that's, that's on the screen. On that level, I belong to the post-Nouvelle Vague composers like Maurice Jarre or Delury, or even Herman. Because when you listen to Herman's scores, he doesn't underline every uh, movement on the, on the, on, on the screen. Uh, and there's not music wall to wall. He, the music 
is the is the soul of the film and it's vibrating with the actors with the camera moves um and that's you know with the light and that's 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 what i like to do so to to which means that i do want to see the film and i want to write to the film um each each you know each composer has his own way of being inspired i'm inspired by the images and by the actors and and their voices and uh, and I need to watch the film. I need to see. I need to to chew the picture until I, it's in my it's my, it's in my uh, blood, and then I can create something that belongs to the film without mimicking what is on the screen. And we know you're a flute player, but I'm wondering how. What, no, what no, is no. your no, I'm a very good flute player. Oh. You're an amazing flute player. Thank you. Um, but it, what what is your weapon of choice when you're writing? What's your process? Do you use a flute? Do you use a piano? I mean, how do you approach when you first start to write? And is it by hand or by computer? You know, writing is, is not playing. Composing is not playing. Improvising, yes, it's playing. But composing is not playing. Uh, I don't have that approach. When we were talking about Mr. Fox earlier and the concept of Mr. Fox, it's it's very important for me to find these concepts. It can be the instrumentarium, it can be uh, the key that I'm going to use, in which key I'm going to I'm going to work. Um, is it D major because it's bright? Is it uh, uh, E flat minor minor uh, for whatever reason, or is it if e flat minor because the movie is very sunny and bright and I want, I want to shade it, <laughs> dim the light? I don't know. Uh, is it, there's the tempo. Jerry Goldsmith was genius at choosing the right tempo. Um, so what's the tempo of the film? What's the tempo of this important scene in the film? Um, when I have answers to all these questions, um, I hear chords, I hear melodies, I hear things. And and I write on notebooks, big notebooks, pages and pages and pages and pages of notes. It can be a chord, it can be a few a few bars of a, of a melody line. Um, I'm not a pianist, but I can, I can use the piano, of course. But So I use the piano when I need to look for chord changes that I, you know, I want to explore. Um, for many, many years, when I was a French composer, mm-hmm. uh, being, before being a Hollywood composer, I would write everything on paper. But as you know, the schedules in, in Hollywood are crazy and you can't do that unless you're John Williams and you have, you have that incredible speed. Um, so I, um, I do extreme precise orchestration on digital performer of all the cues. Each cue is orchestrated on digital performer. And then my team of, of orchestrator comes in and, and submits to me what they've done and they're correct. And, uh, and we together, we do uh, the final touch. I'm interested in and would love to have a lesson about what you said about Jerry Goldsmith. I've never thought of that or heard it, that he was a genius at tempo. 
that's so subtle and only a composer in some ways would be able to determine that is there any example that we should look at of of a film or a cue or okay how that's affected you yes easy i'd like to learn easy basic instinct that's an easy film to find hmm. listen to the melody and the tempo of the melody when it when they're driving on the corniche going to the house at the beginning of the film that's all it's perfect oh that's great <laughs> it's my next it's my next stop because it's something that's probably not acknowledged enough by audiences of all the subtlety of film music that affects an audience the tempo you just accept it that's obviously the tempo that's the correct tempo um, when you were, you were mentioning birth earlier and mm -hmm. when i wrote birth um i chose one key with each the key of d major for all the film and at the very end of the film, there's this very sad moment when Nicole Kidman goes to, gets married and we see her in the waves of a, of a sea, of an ocean. And we drop down to the minor relative of D major, which is B minor. And so that's a way of, of you know, keeping the concept to the end. As, as, and as tempo, there's a French movie called Read My Lips, Sur Mes Lèvres by Jacques Audiard. Who did a prophet? Maybe you, you've heard of that movie or, or Sisters Brothers. Um, and that movie, because I wanted the score to be, it's it's two stories. It's at the same time a love story and a thriller. And I, I didn't want the music to be different, so I kept the same tempo from A to Z of the film. It's the same tempo from beginning to the end. It's 80 BPM. But wow. at 80, you can go to 160. So when you need acceleration, you just double the time. Yeah. Uh, and that was a way of keeping the same pulsation all through the film. I wonder if the filmmakers ever felt it, knew it, or said to you, hey man, aren't you going to change the tempo? Or are we all in the same key the entire movie? Don't you want to leave the key of D at some point? Or do you just do your job and they say we like it or we don't, but never ask you specifics. No, I, I don't. That's my, that's my, I'm in the kitchen for that. <laughs> you know, I must say, Carol, composer Carol, who is here with us, has perfect pitch. So I just watch her. I watch her when you say D and B minor. And I know for a fact that she is singing those pitches in her head and imagining how they go and relative and, minors. And for birth, um, uh, Jonathan Glazer and Peter Reburn, who were director and producer of the, for the music uh, when I was uh, writing this score, um, they, they love this idea of having just one key. But, in, but I mean, D major, but there's so many uh, chords on top of D major that at sometimes you don't really know in which key you are, but, uh, but D is the, is the guide. It's a bright key. It's a... Yes. It's that F sharp that makes it kind of sparkle. So you you were doing the French films and and knocking it out of the park. And then at what point did you get a call or how did you end up getting your first Hollywood gig? And did you see it? Was it out of nowhere or was it kind of something that was building and you finally got an opportunity? Well, I had done a few British movies and one mm. of them was um, um, The Losing Defense by Oscar winner. Uh, Marlon Goris, Dutch director, uh, where for the first time I used the LSO and, and 
uh, and I was able to write a very lyrical score, quirky at times, uh, but lyrical. And I, I know that it was heard by, by a few people. Uh, and one or two years later, I wrote this score for this movie I just mentioned at 80 BPM, Sur mes lèvres, Read My Lips, and by Jacques Audiard. And uh, Peter Weber was looking for a, a composer. He, for some reason, he couldn't find because each time he was asking for a composer for Girl with a Pearl Earring, the people he would meet would uh, suggest to to write a uh, period music. And when I saw the film, I said, no, it would be horrible to, to have period music. We don't need that. Uh, it exists already. We need to find something else. And he found me by listening, well, by watching and listening to the score of Read My Lips, who was oh. produced by Pate, the same studio. Did he come to you and say, do you know any other tempos besides 80 ppm just before I hire you? <laughs> you know what he liked in Sumelev was not only the tempo, but it's the silence. Because there are great, mo it's about a, a, a deaf uh, woman who's mm. in love with a, with a bad guy, with a villain and a, a gangster. And, and, uh, and there were many moments where the music would stop. Like Jerry Goldsmith does in Chinatown, actually. Where the music would, the chords would 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 uh, decay, stop, start again, decay, start again, and he liked the idea that I could respect the silence and use the silence uh, in my tempo and not just, you know, paint the whole film with music. The Hollywood way. That would be. Have you scored two films with a deaf protagonist? Because Shape of Water isn't. That young lady? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I listened to The Shape of Water, and I thought for sure, but I couldn't find it anywhere in the notes that you used, you know, those water glasses. They do them. There was a guy in, in who would air Lindhurst. He'd come out onto the floor with a whole tray of water glasses and do that thing where he'd rub his finger around the crystal. different glasses. Right, crystal. It always felt like in Shape of Water, but I think it might be a flute now that I think of it. Well, actually, just to correct what you just said, in 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 Shape of Water, she's a mute. Oh, she's she a can mute. hear. Yes, I was close. And yes, almost. It was almost yes. And and girl with a pearl earring, she never spoke. It was some kind of a mute too. She never said a word through the film, Scarlet. So you have yeah, that's very interesting. Two mutes and a deaf person, and the scores have been transcendent but um you i read also that for the guillermo del toro pinocchio you're writing songs yes um yes i i you know i have written a lot of songs here in in, in europe in france before um, you were scoring films you were a songwriter or no while, but I, 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 I you know i was a composer yes sure that's it and and sometimes I would write songs, and sometimes I would write uh, write for short movies or or anything else. Um, but I, I, aside from this movie I mentioned, Right of the Guardians, where I wrote a song for uh, Rene Fleming, I, ne I never really had an opportunity in America to write songs for a film. Hmm. And Guillermo gave me that opportunity for Pinocchio. Yes, so we we wrote um, seven or eight songs 
for the film. Uh, we just recorded yesterday some some vocal overseas, and um, it's very exciting. Uh, I, lo I love writing songs. Actors as singers? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You and McGregor, yeah. Oh well, he's we did Moulin Rouge. He's a great singer. He's a fantastic singer. Very good. Do you sing? Uh, do I sing? Uh, if I sing, yes, if I need to. You'll be in it. You'll be a, a voice. Um, it's interesting. You said almost as an aside, you love writing songs. That's not always the case. You know, it, speaking of Robert Urband, I worked did, did a lot with Michael Kamen, and he yes. occasionally was asked to write a song. And it was the exact opposite problem that songwriters have who are asked to be composers. They don't understand that the composing form is very different. And that songwriting is a very specific A, A, B, A, whatever your structure is of a song. Um, came and write these songs that were amazing songs, but they didn't sound like songs. They sounded like cues with lyrics. So <laughs> um, your songs, there are four characters to sing on screen. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So it's yeah, a musical. Like, 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 it is. It is. The thing is that, as I mentioned before, because my my childhood was a mix of many um, musical influences. Uh, the American songbook has always been very present in my house, from Duke Ellington to Gershwin to Cole Porter, you know, and all the many others. Um, and, and so I've, I've also been a great jazz fan and, and jazz player. So, um, all the standards, I mean, most of the standards in the 30s, 40s were coming from musicals, from this composer, Gershwin or Porter and, or Ellington. Um, and, um, and when you play these, these, uh, these tunes, they're incredible tunes, but also incredible chord changes. Um, yes, I was listening yesterday to, by pure accident, to Duke Ellington piece in Portrait of, of a Lady. It's a portrait of Ella Fitzgerald, an album he did with Ella Fitzgerald and for Ella Fitzgerald. And there's a piece called All Heart. Man, the chord progression, the melody, the arrangements, it's just to die for. And, and I've been listening to this kind of music since I'm a kid. So it's also in my DNA to, to, to try and write a standard Let's put it oh, that way. That's so wonderful. I mean, you're you're talking my language, of course. I was just looking before we started today. There's a new documentary on Ella, uh -huh. and um, I'm looking forward. And it's interesting because, as many of our listeners know, jazz comes out of that. Mu I mean, the bebop era is you know Charlie Parker and Dizzy play and Miles playing the changes, but playing making new melodies, you know, Ella's uh, How High the Moon and, and Ornithology, you know, the same changes. Mm -hmm. Charlie Parker mm -hmm. takes Ornithology, is somewhere there's music, How High the Moon, I mean, I love those changes to death. And mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting because a lot of composers do not, they appreciate it, but they're not as enamored of it they've come up so profoundly in Mahler and in Brahms and they don't know the American songbook 
which is one of my favorites. Well, I, I suspect that John Williams does, that Dave Grusin does, that, yes. that Henry, Henry Mancini did. Oh, that, you know, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're Franz so Waxman right. also. So that, yeah. Yeah. Well, those are the complete composers. Hey, we have a lot more to get to. We're going to take a quick break. Much more with Alexander Desplat right after this. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Score fans, it's Kenny. We are stoked to be back for Season 3, and we couldn't have done it without your support. Be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements, video clips, industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at ScoreThePodcast, Instagram at ScoreMovie, and Facebook at score movie, or you can just search score a film music documentary. Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're on Apple podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it. Hi, this is Marco Beltrami. You're listening to score the podcast. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to score the podcast presented by Spitfire audio. We're here with our Oscar and Golden Globe winning composer guest Alexander Desplat, who, by the way, again, I'll mention is the guest of honor at this year's World Soundtrack Awards, which is going to be taking place online. Obviously, uh, there's no plans to do it in person on October 24th. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, you you talked about how you made the transition to Hollywood but you still live in Paris. Um, do you work out of Hollywood when you're working on films or do directors come visit you or do you do everything remotely? Because that can pose a challenge if someone wants to see you right away in person. I do anything I'm asked to do. That's the right answer. That's the right answer, yeah. And they, they like to know that um, it's sometimes difficult when it's two different continents and nine hours apart for a director. But I would imagine at this point in your career, you've earned the right to write. You've earned the right, R-I-G-H-T, to write, W-R-I-T-E, where it's best for you. Well, I've been, I've been very lucky to have also directors who, who are very faithful and call me back, and, and after, you know, movies after movies. So there is some kind of a, uh, a routine now between us. If, I'm, if they're in L.A., I'm happy to come to my house in LA and stay there and work with them from my, my studio in LA. Uh, but very often they, they're happy to come to Paris, believe it oh, or I not. Bet. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I love doing it from, from California. Uh, I, I always try to be in the room at some point with the director. Sometimes it's difficult because he's editing locked somewhere and, 
not even in America, could be in London or, uh, and I can't have a studio in every city, but um, it's important that some, I think it's important, it's crucial, especially when you don't know the director very well to be in the same room, because it's not the same. It's like going to the movies or, st or watching a movie at home. It's no total different experience because the vibration of, of a person near you is, is not the same as, as when you're on your own in front of the computer. Uh, even, you know, the, the, it's like if, if the ideas were floating in the air in the room and if the director is near me, which I like because that's why I chose to write music for films. Otherwise I would only write for concert mm -hmm. being myself, you know, as a, as an artist, but no, I like to be sharing that with the director and, and through his vision, try and, and capture a musical vibration of his vision. So when we're in the same room, if, of course, there's something quick and immediate. You know, if you send a demo to someone uh, overseas, he hears a huge piece of music orchestrated. And if he li doesn't like, I don't know, a line, a cotton point, he doesn't like the piece. If he's in my studio, I just can mute that line and it's over. We move on to the next piece um, because it's it's a working process. That, that's the great thing about uh, electronics today. We can create a demo, which is almost as good as what the orchestra will be when we record. Um, and it's been very rare that I come to a recording session with an orchestra and that the director is unhappy because he's heard everything so carefully before with precision and we we're, we got rid of the trumpet when he didn't like the trumpet on a on a shot or you know it's so it, it uh, are you able to work with guillermo in person right now with with P pinocchio or is everything being done no, remotely no this is a very special different moment of course uh, these last three months but we did work together uh, before that, yes, last year um, and in the fall in Paris, we were sitting together here and we, we went through the, 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 the lyrics and, um, mm. uh, and now we have, we have songs where Guillermo is, is lyricist with a, a great friend of mine, Katz, who's also a, a friend. I wrote songs when I was a, a French composer, mm. but, but he's American. Uh, so we, we have... We have been able to sit down, but for the last uh, four months, nothing, nobody, nobody moved. Everyone is songwriting remotely, and thankfully, yeah, exactly. you now have a technology where you just can send an MP3, you can send a Pro Tools session. I wanted to ask about electronics, because I, over the last few days, have been listening to so many of your scores and just amazed by, yeah. I'm amazed by your musicality. It's just so it feels effortless, which is probably the mark of anybody that works super hard. Is It just flows effortlessly. I've wondered, though, whether you, you're so well-versed in orchestrating. Do you think about synthetic percussion and synthetic textures? Do you prefer, I mean, it's a dumb question because we all use everything at our disposal, I know, but some some composers these days, it's like the orchestra is almost on top of a huge synthetic and program track, and I don't feel that. I feel that you still express yourself 
with humans. I may be fooled. It may be it's the best programming in the world. But what do you think and what are you thinking these days about electronics in your scores? Well, electronics are just sounds that I, I like to use as what, for what they are. Um, I think I'm a symphonist before anything, um, or a, a classical composer or a jazz composer, which means that I use, as you said, humans to, to blow or to, to, to scratch an instrument or to hit an instrument. Um, and as long as the, as the, um, the electronic I use is part of a whole, um, and gives me uh, a range that I can't get with the with the orchestra, or, or an impact that I can't get with an orchestra. I use it, or or a sound which is so um, unknown or strange that I can use it, and it gives something interesting to the orchestra. But the orchestra remains my my main uh, gear. Your instrument. It must have yeah. been joyful to do Secret Life of Pets with just a swinging band. Was it an American recording session with American players? Yeah, it was fantastic. We are at Capitol, yeah, we with legends oh, of, of... So that's of, it. Of, yes. The ghosts in the room were swinging yeah. with you. Was Absolutely. It a big, was it a big band? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rather big, yeah. No, it was really, yeah, yeah five saxes and four trumpets and four, uh, three trombones, tuba, you know. No, it was, it was piano, Randy Kerber on piano. It was, was, was really an amazing uh, time to record this, this score. And to be able to, to match, which I've always dreamed of doing, and it's very rare to be able to do it, to match jazz and symphony orchestra. That's why I love so much these recordings with Ella, you know, the Nelson Riddle, orchestration or the Quincy Jones orchestrations with Saravon where you make the mix jazz and orchestra um, or this fantastic album um, Winter Marsalis album called Hot House Flowers that's a, a trumpet player I would love to record with one day uh, he's such a fantastic musician yeah well, this combination of jazz and, and, and orchestra is something uh, magical for me just I was magical. just thinking that maybe there's a is there a trumpet player in Pinocchio that maybe could be cast as uh, Cole Winton and say, listen, we have a gig for you. We're going to play you. I'm sure Winton Marsalis would kill to be on an Alexander Desplat. <laughs> okay, let's wait until he tells me that. <laughs> yes, I, I wouldn't be surprised. He would, he would love that. I know that Carol is a big Harry Potter fan. And we were talking about it and wondering how it was for you to, of course, work on something that John Williams had set the table. Did you ever sit next to John Williams and ask him, how'd I do, boss? No, I would never dare. I would never dare talk, talk about me with him. <laughs> uh, Have I you had conversations always... with him? Had a chance to visit yes. with John oh, yes. He's been, Yeah, yes, of course. He's been very, very, very sweet with me. Very sweet, very kind, always. Um, uh, but uh, no, I would never dare <laughs> show him my scores or asking anything about myself. Right. I would ask him to, to help me. Uh, <laughs> you know, to sa save me, save my soul. <laughs> and, save my, and save my score. 
Yes. You mentioned in an interview before that he was one of your inspirations for scoring. Um, I don't want to get too much into the award shows and stuff, but for you to be standing up on the Oscar stage winning for Grand Budapest and, and having John Williams in the room, what, what did that mean to you? Luckily enough, it had happened before um, to be in the same room because I think we, we nominated two or three times, uh, whether at the Globes, whether at, at the Oscars. And, and uh, I remember him winning for... Um, um, uh, uh, um, Memories of a Geisha, mm. of the Golden Globes, uh, and and uh, I remember that I, it's the first time I was able to to see him in a room and be able to talk to him. So I I uh, I remember I had beautiful glasses that I loved very much that night, and I went to his to his table at the other side of the room. I introduced myself. I said, huh? I came back. I had no more glasses. You left them. No, I don't know. I lost them. <laughs> you blacked out. Well, it, <laughs> it's clear. It's clear that he wanted to see the world that you do. Did you go back up to him and say, excuse me, maestro, you seen my glasses? And, and maybe strike up another conversation? Round two? No, what is crazy is that he's lost... Uh, He's he's won five times and he's lost lost forty seven times or something or fifty times. It's just it's nonsense. That's silly, but also I bet if you asked Maestro Williams about that, he would be suitably humble and chill about it and say, yeah. you know, those scores were so great. I mean, he is really the most generous. But I'd say second to John Williams in generosity. Maestro Desplat. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Before we let you go, um, you know, we we lost a great one in Ennio Morricone. And uh, we were just curious if you ever spent time with uh, Maestro Morricone or you had a, a story of maybe a score that's a particular favorite of yours. When I f- the first time I met Ennio Morricone, I was, there was a concert in Cannes organized by the SSM, the French uh, mm-hmm. Society. Uh, it was the first time ever there was a concert of composers in, in Cannes. They were legends, Randy Newman, Morricone, uh, and many others, and Antoine Duhamel. Uh, and I was the, the kid. I was the, 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 the baby of, the, of, the, of them all. And I was the first to go on stage to start the concert. And they were all on the first row. And Morricone, who was like this. Arms crossed. Looking at me just just, just here. It was so horrible, so difficult. And uh, when I, I came out of the, of, the, of the podium after a while, we had, I, could, I was able to say, uh, present myself, introduce myself. And he said, uh, he spoke to me in Italian. So we spoke in Italian together. And he said, uh, attenzione, non troppo d'ostinato. Because the piece that I presented was some kind of a minimalistic piece with a repetitive pattern, evolving, but, you know, with a pattern. And it was funny because if there's something, if there's one thing that you can really recognize uh, Enio for, is these ostinatos that he uses a lot, <laughs> these repetitive patterns that he keeps. So what uh, was the translation? He was saying too much ostinato or... 
Yes, yes. And I was using <laughs> too much ostinato, yes. Because you were getting onto his territory. That's why. He was, Maybe. Hey, man. He was saying, this is my, you know, you want to step up to my uh, playing field. I don't Do you think, think so. about that now? And when you're writing scores, you're like, ah, oh, too many ostinatos here. I, I got to take that. I always think about it, I must say. Yeah. Uh, but, bet. you know, he, he he's... He invented something that nobody had invented before, and that's just—it's mind-blowing what he introduced to cinema and to cinema, which was an American type of cinema, westerns. Well, now we must remember that he did movies before that, before Leone, where the music was very, very uh, uh, explorative. Can you say that? Yes, exploratory. Exploratory. Uh, with Pasolini in particular. So um, what is crazy is the number of scores he wrote. He lived like a monk. Uh, and and this very uh, quiet, distant man uh, with his big glasses had a brain full of fireworks. And that's something that also... Incredible. He did something that we're lucky that you don't do. He only spoke in his language. If you did a session with Morricone, there was a translator there. Thankfully, your English is perfect. He would speak only Italian. You kind of had the feeling that he said to the translator, I hate this note that they're giving me. I'm not changing my cue a bit. And then the translator would say something reasonably nice like, the maestro is not certain. You know, he's thought it. He's thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, he's thinking about it. But you had the feeling from his stern demeanor. But uh, you knew that he didn't want to make any changes. However. Well, I think it's cool that, uh, you know, now we're here in present day. And you are one of the legends that a young new class composer can go up to. And you can tell him too many ostinatos. I wait for that day. That's the day this block comes up and says, you know, be care in French, you have to say it. Too many. <laughs> yeah. ostinatos. When, I, when I have large glasses and I'll big be glasses. with That's my arms it. like this, yes. Just don't lose them. And, they, and people, <laughs> now you said you travel to L.A., but for Morricone and someday soon, I hope for you, you only record in Paris. Guillaume Tell. Do you use that studio? <laughs> Of course, it's the only one uh, standing anymore. Yes, All the other so, ones have, have shut down. So you have to, uh, you know, that's the only place that you'll record. You won't move. Believe me, they will beat a path to your door. Yeah, can you tell us really quick, when? what's the plan for the French Dispatch? I know it's up in the air, but at, at the current point, is it going to be a theatrical release? Are they going to go digital? Do you have any idea? I don't know. You should ask for, you should have search like pictures. I'm going to ask them. I, I know really, those I really guys. Don't know. I worked with yeah. them on all that stuff. Well, the trailer looks fantastic. I can't wait to watch it. Same. That's for it's sure. It's an incredible and movie. Again, congratulations on the 2020 Guest of Honor at the World Soundtrack Awards. That's taking place October 24th online, so we'll be sure to tune in. They're going to do a live concert and everything. And uh, Thank you. It's been such a pleasure spending time with you. And again, as so many of our guests, you know, we, we jump through hoops to get this show going remotely. And uh, we can't thank you enough for the time you took to help get this going. And uh, best of luck with the new film and everything in the future. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Carol. Thanks to Robert. Thanks, Kenny. A tout à l'heure, monsieur. Alexander Desplat, thank you so much for coming on the show. A reminder to our listeners that there's a number of ways to follow us. 
Twitter at score the podcast, Instagram at score movie, Facebook score a film music documentary. Send us your questions to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. We'll try and answer those and stick around after the break. Uh, at the end of the show here, we're going to play you a little clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear some different sounds to elevate your music. Robert, take it away, man. I'm happy in a way that I can't even put into words. So I'm going to just leave this podcast singing a cue. High Speed Train, my favorite. <laughs> Alexandra, we'll see you. Thank you. And score listeners, we'll see you next week. Now, as Enyo would say, ciao. Hey, SCORE listeners, we're so grateful for the support of our sponsor, Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. And you're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. Also, an exclusive to SCORE listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order. It's such a good deal. That's good on over 50 of their libraries, exclusive to SCORE the podcast listeners kenny what's what's the process they have to go through just go to spitfireaudio.com and enter the promo code score 2020 all lowercase so they know we sent you now here is a musical cue created with one of their packages the british drama toolkit
Again, just go to spitfireaudio.com, use the promo code SCORE2020 and save 20% off your first order from Spitfire Products. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And when will we see them again, Robert? I think we're going to see you in just a week. Yes? Sounds good. Yeah, no more breaks for us. We are hard at work, sleeves rolled up. Score the podcast.